You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the Freedom Pact podcast, I am joined by author Sarah Knight, who has written books that include The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck and four more exceptional books. Today on the show, we are here to talk about mental decluttering, the power of saying no, how you can get your shit together, and much, much more. To be honest with you guys, this is probably personally my favorite conversation I've had on the podcast so far, so I'm really excited to share it with you. Let's just dive straight into this one. Sarah, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being invited. So... When I was researching your background, um, I was taken back by, you know, your decision to, to move to the Dominican Republic. You say you saved up, quit your job, sold your apartment and moved your entire life there. I was just curious as to what the decision process was like. Why did you do it? And most importantly, were you scared? Was it a risk at the time? Oh, I was very scared. It felt like taking a huge risk. Uh, and, you know, I was lucky to have my husband's support in this endeavor. Uh, it wasn't a decision that I made alone or had to execute alone. But basically, I had been working in the publishing industry. I was a senior editor at Simon & Schuster for the last five years of my career. And I really wanted to get out of corporate life. Uh, it was not for me. It was really contributing to the downfall of my mental health. And I decided that I was going to quit my job and try my hand as a freelance editor. And that was the first big risk and the first really terrifying decision. And once I made that choice and I started working every day for a year to save up uh, enough money to give me a cushion to enact that choice, that was when the gears really started turning for myself and my husband on, well, you know, if I'm not working in the publishing industry in New York City anymore, then I don't really need to live in New York City, do I? And moving someplace tropical was something he and I had always both been interested in doing and had talked about doing, but just thought we would do it in 25 years when we retired instead of right now. And what has it done for you personally and mentally since you moved there? I imagine that it brings or can bring at times a good sense of mindfulness in a place like that. Yeah, I mean, for me, actually, as a as a recovering perfectionist and a very type A, uh, always moving, always have a bunch of balls in the air kind of person for so many years of my life before I started writing my books and gradually uh, talking myself out of that way of being, uh, the move to the Dominican Republic was sort of enforced tranquility. Uh, it was something that I, I wanted to do and recognized that doing would mean that I had to stop being quite so uh, ruled by order and uh, and by high pressure situations in which I thrived for a long time. But when I stopped thriving in them and when I realized how much it was getting to me, I knew that I needed to make a big change. And I really dumped myself in the middle of 
a whole separate set of challenges in terms of becoming somebody who could find peace and tranquility and not anxiety in things not always going as I wanted them to or going slower than I expected them to, which is definitely a hallmark of life down here. Something that when we organized this podcast, I I initially really wanted to talk to you about was this idea of mental decluttering because personally it's probably not something I'm great at doing. So to get your advice on a personal level would be fantastic. Um, you mentioned that it's a, a two-step process, so disregarding and organizing. Is that right? Yes. My theory of mental decluttering was modeled after Marie Kondo's uh, physical decluttering Bible, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. So anybody who's read my first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, or just heard of it, uh, probably gets that that was uh, intended as a parody and homage to her book. And in it, I explored the process of decluttering your mind in the same way that she would have you declutter your Uh, sock drawer or your garage. And the two steps are discarding and organizing. And Marie Kondo would have you put all of your possessions into the middle of the floor and ask yourself if it brings you joy. And if the answer is no, discard it. Uh, I, because you know, my book was a parody of hers. And because I'm trying to do this in a, in a slightly funnier way, uh, ask you to identify what annoys you and to get ready to discard that from your life. So uh, my first book actually wound up spawning this mini self-help empire of its own uh, in, in my subsequent uh, five books in total. But the first one about mental decluttering was really focused on the idea that you can do the same thing with all of the obligations and guilt and tasks and relationships that uh, are going on inside your mind as you can with your physical possessions. Hmm. So if we bring a bit of um, visualization to it for our audience, then what did a cluttered mind look like for you personally? So, For me, there was a lot of sense of obligation and sense of cultural norms and expectations, both for myself uh, out of, you know, expectations for my career and for what my life would look like, for where I would live and uh, for my economic situation, but also expectations that I felt other people had for me, whether that be my family, my colleagues or society as a whole. So that was a huge component of the mental clutter that I needed to rid myself of. So for example, just working in a corporate environment, I've mentioned, uh, was not good for my mental health. And it was everything from feeling like I had to engage in kind of a theatrical performance every day to be a different kind of person than I really am in order to exist uh, successfully and without friction in a corporate environment. And by that, I mean, you know, just checking myself, not sort of expressing the kinds of anti-establishment ideas and and feelings that I might have because I recognized that those were not going to help me move forward in a very establishment kind of place. Um, But it was also little things like dress codes. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, I think everybody should be able to show up to work in their midtown office building uh, naked. But what I'm saying is I felt uh, culturally and societally pushed into wearing high heels and wearing makeup and 
and buying clothes that were too expensive for the salary that I was living on in order to present myself as this young professional and to fit in with everybody around me. And it's just not who I am. Uh, and so that was an, an obligation that I felt I needed to remove from, from my mind to make my mind a more pleasant place to be. And I recognized that I needed to do that you know, part of part of doing that would mean actually taking myself out of a physical situation where I felt it was expected of me. And on this idea of obligation, and this is something I, I love about um, your voice, particularly because, you know, we've interviewed over 100 people on here, and a lot of them are so business guys or motivational speakers. And I think it's very easy in, in the personal development world to take the approach of get over yourself, get on with it. Um, you know, deal with the pressure, but you take, you know, a sort of unique stance and uh, a very refreshing stance. And one of the things you talk about is the power of saying no. And I think that is a really refreshing approach because, you know, you see all these Hollywood movies like Yes Man, for example. And, <laughs> you know, there's, um, you know, there's a saying that, you know, lots of people make a commitment to say yes more, say yes every day for a month. And they put all this glorification into saying yes. But we don't talk about the power of saying no. Why should we allow ourselves to say no more? Well, it's, it's a simple calculation that if you say yes to everything, then you're not going to be able to do anything uh, properly. You're not going to have enough time, energy, and money left at the end of your day or week or month or year to succeed at the things that are really important to you. So I talk a lot in all of my books about prioritizing, about asking yourself the questions, you know, what is important to me? What makes me happy? What serves me? Because, you know, sometimes you have to do things that serve you, such as get up and go to work every day so that you can make money, so that you can pay rent, uh, even if it doesn't exactly make you happy. But what serves me? Um, and what things do I need to prioritize? And then what things can I allow to fall by the wayside because they do not serve me or they actively make me unhappy? And you mentioned at the beginning of your, your question, this idea of obligation. And I just really have always chafed at the idea of being obligated to do anything. Um, and so in my, in my latest book, which is called Fuck No, How to Stop Saying Yes When You Can't, You Shouldn't, or You Just Don't Want To, I have a flowchart. And it builds on some ideas that I, that I write about at length in the book, but the flowchart is a very simple question. And the title of it is, do I really have to? And I think that we all need to spend a little bit more time when we're looking at things that seem like obligations and ask yourself, am I truly obligated to do this? You know, you are obligated to show up at your job if you want to be paid for doing that job. But you are not obligated to go to someone's birthday party. You are not obligated to, you know, attend uh, your, your little nephew's Christmas concert if you do not want to. <laughs> These are things that we could do uh, if we want to do, if it helps other people more than it hurts us to say yes, but you're not really obligated. So I think that because I uh, because I lived a life where I was ruled by the sense of obligation and I took on too much and I had too many balls in the air. And when they came crashing down, it was a massive wake up call. I really go against the idea of just do it, just deal with it, just pile it all on. 
get through this, persevere. I'm like, no, please pair back, say no, you know, stop putting so many balls in the air and that's fewer chances that one of them is going to fall. Um, make sure the ones that you're juggling are the ones that are really important to you and that are worth your focus. Mm. One of the quotes I picked up on in your work is this idea of me time is a right, not a privilege. <laughs> and it made me instantly think of my girlfriend, Hannah, who's, who's a big fan of your work, actually turned me on to your work originally. And I think one of the things she struggles with, for example, is when she's having her time, she sort of feels as if feels guilty for having it almost. And I think a lot of the, the same for myself. I think if I take time for myself to do something to relax or enjoy, I almost feel guilty because I'm thinking, you know, um, what have I said no to, to to do this? Could I be, you know, building on a relationship? Could I be working on the podcast? There's a million things I should be doing. How often do you think that people are forgetting that me time is a right and 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 not just a privilege? Oh, every day, every day we are either forgetting this or we haven't learned the concept yet. And uh, I thank Hannah for turning you on to my to my books. Um, and I certainly have felt that feeling myself. And I have to mindfully uh, and purposefully uh, relearn the, the the forgetting of that feeling. Um, my husband often pokes fun at me because he says I'm really incapable of doing nothing, that it makes me more anxious to try to relax than, than it should. But I do really like to sunbathe. And he says that the reason he thinks I'm capable of laying out in the sun for a couple of hours at a time, seemingly doing nothing, is because I am actually accomplishing something, which is getting a tan by doing it. <laughs> um, so if you have to perform these little feats of mental gymnastics in order to allow you to take advantage of your me time, know that I am doing it too. Um, but, but another thing I say in, in the book that you're referencing is that you should schedule your me time in, in the same way that you schedule time spent on other people and tasks and things and events and obligations, because that means that you have considered that for this 10 minutes or half hour or two hours or one full weekend day, you already made the decision that you are going to be focusing on doing something for yourself and not on building a relationship or working on your podcast. Um, if you schedule it in, then you've already made the responsible decision and it's easier to just enjoy it uh, while it's there for you. So that's something that I, that I would recommend for people who have trouble engaging and fully luxuriating in their me time. I absolutely love that. And, you know, just to go back on um, saying no, how, what is the, what is the right process of saying no then? Because I think a lot of people struggle in the sense that if they say no, they're worried about offending people. So how do we say no to things and avoid offending people whilst still making the decision that is kind to ourselves? That's a really good question. And it's something that I think people don't innately understand when they see the titles of my books, because they think that this lady who's just throwing around the F word and saying that you have to stop giving a fuck and start living your best life means that you suddenly become uh, a rude sociopath with no friends left. Um, really, what you need to do is incorporate honesty and politeness. So the first thing you have to do is be honest with yourself, you know, in that process of mental decluttering, asking yourself what you prioritize and what you can let go. 
what you can discard. But then be honest and polite with other people when you're expressing those decisions. So, you know, you don't just leave somebody hanging. If they invite you to something, whether it's a party or an art gallery opening or a picnic in the park, and you don't want or can't or shouldn't attend for whatever reason, don't leave them hanging because that's not polite. Um, if the reason that you don't want to go, for example, is your friend's having a dinner party and you don't like her current boyfriend and you don't really want to get stuck talking to him for three hours, don't tell her that because in being completely honest, that would also be rude. <laughs> but you can say, I'm not available. Thanks so much for inviting me. You know, don't let it drag out. Be polite. Be as honest as you can be without offending somebody. And more often than not, and I talk about this at length in the book, people will just accept your decision at face value, walk away and continue living their lives. So much of the guilt that we feel about saying no is in our own heads. It's in worrying about what might happen. And then when you try it and it doesn't happen, that's what gives you the feeling of like, oh, I can do this. I did it once. It worked. I can do it again. And, you know, then I'll, in the book, I talk people through the other responses when somebody doesn't take your no for an answer, when they actively try to make you feel guilty and what you can do to, to counteract that. Hmm. I'd like to make this idea of saying no um, a bit relatable to yourself. It's obvious that your work speaks to so many people. Um, you know, every time I go to the local supermarket here, Tesco, I go to the book section and I, I swear your, your books have been in the most popular section every time I've been there. You know, you've got the, the single releases, you've got the, the Sarah Knight collections. Um, they're obviously hitting a, striking a chord with people. But for you personally, what examples come to mind when you personally have finally said no to something and it's bettered your life in a way? So one thing that I, that was a big moment for me was when I was still working in, uh, in my corporate job and my boss uh, asked me if I wanted to attend the London Book Fair. So speaking of Tesco and, and my popularity there, I, I did not get to see it for myself because I did not want to go to the London Book Fair. I did not want to travel. I don't like flying. I'm scared of it. I don't like it. I certainly didn't want to do it on my own without my husband for the purposes of work. I didn't want to be in a great foreign city and not be able to really enjoy it because I was working all day. I would much rather do that in service to a vacation. And I didn't want to leave my work behind for a week and know that I was just going to have to catch up on everything when I got back from also working for a week uh, in a different office, you know, halfway around the world. So I said no. And I actually explained most of those reasons that I just gave you uh, pretty, pretty clearly and diplomatically to my boss. And he said, wow, okay, um, great. I'll ask somebody else then. And, and he said, you know, it's not your, you're not obligated to do this. This isn't how you earn your paycheck. He said, I sometimes, I have to do these things because I'm the boss. And sometimes I wish I could say no. So I totally respect you. And I'll just ask somebody else if they want the opportunity. Um, it was really it was scary for me to say no to him because it was a, an honor that he was conferring on me that out of all, you know, 12 or 13 editors, he was asking me first if I wanted to be the one to represent the company at this important event. And, but I just, I really did not want to do it. And my kind of desperation to not have to do all of those things that I, that I don't like doing uh, overwhelmed my desire to please. And I said no, and it was fine. 
I'm suddenly feeling extremely grateful that you said yes to doing this podcast. <laughs> well, I didn't have to fly anywhere to do this podcast, and I am in my pajamas, even though it is almost three o'clock where I live. No judgment here. I'm all for it. Um, when you're saying no to things such as, you know, mass on the scale that you're saying no to them, like the London Book Fair, do you deal with any fear of missing out? And, and how do you process that? So when you're saying... I've wanted to say no to something multiple times where I thought, yeah, but what if I miss out on something? What if I miss an opportunity that could have been great for me? How do you deal with those thoughts? So I think that there are two different tributaries of FOMO, fear of missing out. One of them is is more social and relates to fun things like, you know, saying no to a party. Uh, that I really don't have a problem with. I'm very comfortable in my own skin, who I am, what I prefer, how I want to spend my time. And if I don't want to do something and I don't do it, I really don't give it much more thought in a social context. In a work context, it was a lot harder for me to get over because I I did identify so much as an ambitious overachiever. Uh, My career was so important to me. My career is still important to me uh, in a different context now that I'm a writer instead instead of working for a corporation. But I just make the calculations. I make the simple mental decluttering calculations that I talk about in all my books. I prioritize what's important. And I do think to myself, if I say no to this thing, it's because I have run through the permutations of what saying yes will mean and what saying no will mean. And I've decided that for me, it serves me to say no. Um, And will I still have a hint of, you know, should I have done that uh, or should I be about to say no to this because maybe I'll be losing out on a certain opportunity? I've already calculated what that opportunity, I, I've thought to myself, okay, say I do lose an opportunity. How will I feel about that? Will I kick myself? And if the answer is no, I won't really kick myself, then you know, I know that I'm on the right track. So it's really about making a constant self-assessment, being honest with yourself. And then also, if you find yourself suffering from that FOMO, go ahead and make a different decision next time. You know, None of this has to be a permanent way of life you can change you can you can do things differently hmm. it's interesting that you say that because i think back to an opportunity i was given in january i was offered to go and um speak at an event in a school and run some workshops and speaking is something i'd always thought about wanting to break into and i remember at the time i actually really i wanted to say no because i had you know other commitments but i thought what if this was what if this was the big break I was supposed to have? What if this was going to open a door for me? And I said no. And I remember all weekend I was checking on, you know, how the event was running. And the weeks after I was checking on the, the speakers that were there and seeing if it opened any opportunities. And now looking back on it, I calculated that realistically going to it would have probably made me unhappy and, and anxious, but didn't actually do anything for me if I had gone. So. I like what you're saying up there about it's sometimes about realistically calculating what it is worth before you make your decision. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my work is based in just logic and reason and being rational. And I don't really write about or, or speak about um, self-help in a way that is sort of fantastical and aspirational <laughs> and, uh, and, and manifesting and all of these types of 
of, of ways and languages that are totally valid and, you know, they work for people, but that's not how I am. I really look at things in very quantifiable, logical terms because it's the way I've been able to rein in my lesser impulses and my personal mental health problems and struggles. So if it works for me, then it stands to reason that it might work for other people. And that's where I'm coming from. And for me, it really is useful to, to think about things in, in really calculated kind of black and white terms and, and make decisions based on real in the now, uh, you know, factors, as opposed to just sort of getting overwhelmed by the what ifs. Mm. It's interesting you say that as well, because actually two interviews before this one, I interviewed um, John Asaraf. So he's one of the the guys that contributed to The Secret. Do you remember that movie? It was a really big personal development movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I spoke to him, it was, like you said, it was magical. It was all about manifestation and putting things out there in the universe and them coming back to you. And then speaking to you, it's like, the language is, is, is flipped the switch completely. And I, I wondered that about, about your work and, and, and why you, you know, you brand it in a way in which you, you don't hold back. You use, you know, words that I think people like, you know, John, for example, wouldn't dream of putting in his work. <laughs> is that important to you in the sense of keeping it organic and making sure it's relatable? Because, you know, I'm all for, you know, manifestation and all these you know magical things but sometimes i just think right i need to get my shit together like that's how people speak well you know i i'm really grateful for the success that i've had and i think that part of it is based in authenticity and it's entirely possible that uh you know the woman who wrote the secret wrote a burn i think her name is uh is authentically that that person you know that mm-hmm. everything she writes is from the heart and it's what she believes and it's how she's lived her life and so people feel that and anybody who who wants to emulate that feels like they've found a guide for me uh i was only ever going to succeed as a giver of advice and a a self-help author if i could remain very true to myself i mean it's the reason that i left the corporate world because i couldn't really be the person who (laughs) who bangs her fists on the table and says get your shit together uh because that is just not not appropriate in the in the uh, environment that I used to work in. So I think it's it's probably just that, you know, as I said, this is this is my life that a lot of this is based on and my experiences. It's the advice I would give to friends and colleagues and family who are going through these little upheavals whether they're related to setting boundaries uh, or goal setting and motivation or building self-confidence or battling anxiety, you know, which all of my books have been about in one way or another. Um, so I'm just doing it in, in the way that I do it for myself and using the language and the attitude and the humor that helps me cope. So it's coming across, I think, as just extremely authentic. Um, and that seems to be attractive to people no matter what kind of language the authenticity is wrapped up in. It could be manifestation, you know, manifesting uh, your wildest dreams, or it could just be telling yourself to get your shit together <laughs> no I'm, I'm glad we clarified that before i asked the next question and, and <laughs> the audience think that my this is my phrasing but i'm gonna go ahead and ask it like this so is in what ways 
can our shit be lacking togetherness? I mean, you know, what are the different types and, and how does the listener know which type they fit into before they can start working on it? Well, the listener is welcome to go to my website, nofucksgivenguides.com, and take the Which Chipmunk Are You quiz, uh, which, which uh, sounds like a strange non sequitur. But, uh, but in Get Your Shit Together, I basically outline these three different types of people, and I base them on the, the characters in Alvin and the Chipmunks, because that's the kind of stuff I do. And, um, and you've got the Simons, who are you know so together, they're so uptight, they've got all these balls in the air, they, they think that um, you know, saying yes to everything and accomplishing everything early and, and adding more to their plate means that their shit is together. But unfortunately, and I am a Simon, that leads to their shit all falling apart one day when, when they least expect it. Um, and then you've got the Alvins. My husband is an Alvin. My editor is an Alvin who talk a good game and are pretty good at keeping stuff together most of the time, but they definitely let it slide and they're maybe not uh, as careful and focused. And sometimes people will stop trusting them and, and people will kind of say, Oh, that guy's a little slippery. Like, He's, uh, you know, he seems like a good guy, but I'm not really sure that he's got it together. And then you've got the Theodores. My mother is a Theodore. Um, and they are just so overwhelmed all the time. Everything is too big. The task is too big. The goal is too big. You know, the to-do list is too big. And they don't even know where to start. So, you know, the Simons don't know where to stop. <laughs> the Theodores <laughs> don't know where to start. And the Alvins are in the middle. Uh, and so over the course of the book of Get Your Shit Together, you know, I just give a lot of different examples of, of you know, stuff, the ways in which your shit might be lacking togetherness um, and how you can cope with that depending on what kind of person you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are. Amazing. I think it's a, it's a fantastic analogy and there's a lot of fun to be had in exploring it. I think it's fantastic. Um, on this idea of the, the, the get your shit together theory, then you break down into strategy, focus and commitment. So if we start with strategy, what tips do you have for goal setting and, and making a plan of action? So strategize, focus and commit are the three pillars of getting your shit together. And it's really what I came up with when I thought, well, how do I accomplish a task? What is it that makes me high achieving and successful and that has enabled me to go out and set big goals and achieve them? And it's because I start by making a plan and, you know, your strategy is your plan. And I have, you know, basically it can have five steps or it can have 50 steps. Um, and the next pillar is focus. And that's when you take one of those steps at a time and work on that, you know, and that's really helpful for the Theodores in the world because you don't have to be overwhelmed by a 50 step plan. You don't have to be overwhelmed at moving out of your, you know, selling your apartment, leaving your job, selling your apartment, moving out of Brooklyn, finding a place to live in a foreign country and learning Spanish. You can decide that you're going to focus on finding the best online Spanish app. <laughs> and that can be your task for the day. Um, and then committing is, is commitment. Committing is sitting down, putting your butt in the seat and doing the work. So really the whole book is about breaking things down into small manageable chunks. And the first way to do that is to break it down into strategize, focus, and commit. So anything that you're looking to do, whether it's improving a personal relationship or getting a new job or moving house or just cleaning house, um, you're going to need a plan for that. 
you know, there's, there's, there's no, there's nowhere to go without a plan. <laughs> Onto the idea of focus then. And, and, you know, like you said, um, I think this is particular for the Theodores, a, a case of focusing on the small chunks rather than the big picture. What is this idea of a, a must do list? And is that something that, that you use personally? I do. I love the must-do list, and it seems to have really permeated. Uh, it's, I get so much fan mail about must-do lists. So basically, I'm a lister. I like to write things down. And, um, and even my to-do lists, even though I'm pretty high-functioning, can get overwhelming. And a lot of people have problems procrastinating. So rather than try to eliminate procrastination, which is pretty much impossible for somebody who's a committed procrastinator. <laughs> I decided to help people make procrastination work for them. So you write down your to-do list and maybe it has 10, 15, 20 items on it. And then you rearrange it by urgency. And this is an important part because a lot of people look at an overwhelming to-do list and they just start by doing the stuff they want to do that they feel like doing, or they do the small stuff. And none of that is going to help you if the things that you're ignoring are actually the most urgent, the things that you must do today. So what I suggest is you write out your whole list, then you rearrange it in order of urgency, and you make a new list, a must-do list, that's only the things you must do today. And that allows you to responsibly procrastinate all of the other stuff until tomorrow, hmm. which is very satisfying for a lot of people. Yeah, that's fantastic. And something I'd add to that as well is, you know, I think back to when I've, I've always used to-do lists and I don't think, you know, there's not many better feelings in the world. Maybe when you get that dopamine hit, when you just strike off one of the, one of the uh, points on the to-do list is, it's a it's an addictive feeling and, and i remember yes felt, i know it well <laughs> <laughs> i remember um i've always you know i felt that even if it's something really small even if it's something as small for people as take a shower today striking that off the to-do list is such an empowering feeling and i remember every time i sort of struck one off it would it would make me more motivated to go on to the next one and so we did my my co-host and I on this podcast, who I run it with, we came up with this idea that we started writing to-do lists, but we also started writing, writing completed it lists. So by the end of the day, we had a list of things we could reflect on at the end of the day and, and look at them in you know a chunk and say, wow, I completed all that today. And just like striking them off the to-do list, writing onto the completed it list, was it was a fantastic feeling as well. Yeah, that's incredibly motivating. And that's, you know, something that people need. They need to feel motivated. They need to feel like there is a way forward. And part of that is succeeding at things that you set, you know, at goals that you set for yourself. So completing items on your to-do list is one way to do that. Scheduling your me time is another way because then you've set yourself up for success. And when you have that success, it makes you feel good and it makes you want to make the effort to do it again, again, for yourself. Um, I think it's really important that we, that we reward ourselves in whatever way we can. And if making an I did it list is uh, motivating to you, then Godspeed. Mm. I think one thing I've, I've always found when sort of talking to people who may not be of, 
a similar mindset when it comes to commitment, for example. I think for me at the moment, I'm at a stage where my commitment is normally ruled by how big my why is. So if I have a massive reason behind something, I can personally use that um, sort of intrinsic motivation to motivate myself. But a lot of people I've spoken to um, outside of, of that way of thinking say they struggle with motivation. So they may not have that intrinsic motivation that gets them going, but they still want to accomplish something. And they, they're also the type of people that, you know, if, if I've ever tried to send someone a motivational video and they say that stuff does not work for me, I just can't find the motivation. What are your sort of motivation tips then for people who, who feel a lack of motivation? Well, I think that part of it goes back to the idea of whether you really want to do something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a feeling that a lot of us are attempting to complete tasks or get certain things done in our lives uh, that we don't actually really want to do. And that's <laughs> partly where that lack of motivation comes from. And uh, in terms of get your shit together theory, just theory, I call it, um, you're really using your strategize, focus, and commit to act upon things you've already decided that are important to you and that you want to do. Um, and so if you can't find the motivation for something, it's possible that you don't really want to do that thing. And that's okay to admit. You know, there's, there are people in the world who just don't care if their house is particularly tidy and they've been feeling unmotivated to clean it and shame and guilt about not having a pitch perfect home for all of this time. And instead I have said to them, why don't you just admit that that's not important to you? And then you can use your energy to get motivated to do something that is. So a little trick that I have in the book um, is called the what, why method for setting goals. And you ask yourself two questions, what's wrong with my life and why? And that should lead you to your goal. And that's the thing that you want to be motivated to fix. So, you know, what's wrong with my life? I'm not seeing enough of my kids. Why? Because I'm staying too late at work. Okay. Then your goal needs to be to get out of work earlier. You know, maybe that's once a week, maybe it's every day, but you know what your goal is. And theoretically, the motivation comes because it's a thing that you feel is wrong with your life. If you thought mm -hmm. it was right with your life, then it wouldn't be the answer to the question. <laughs> and it wouldn't be the goal that you're setting. So I do think it all comes back to motivation all comes back to have, having been honest in the first place about what you really want, and what serves you. And if you don't want it, then that's probably why you're lacking the motivation to get it. Wow. So yeah, this, this is why I love this podcast. This conversation is fantastic. A light just went off in my head, actually. I was thinking back when you were saying that to, to when I attended university. And um, at university, I, so at, when I was in high school, I was really academic. I, you know, I got the top grades. And then when I went to university, I remember I went to university to do history. So that was a subject I was really good at in high school and a subject I think that you know, my family and friends sort of expect, and my teachers expected me to go on to do. And so I found myself in a situation where I was in university studying this subject. I didn't really know why, but at the time I was convinced it was what I chose to do. It was what I wanted to do. And I found myself in this place I'd never been before. I wasn't putting in the study hours that I used to put in in high school. I wasn't motivated to write the essays. I wasn't really concerned with all, you know, doing all that well. And by the time I've come out of it now, when I look back on university, I think to myself, I didn't enjoy it. 
And I didn't know why I didn't have the motivation to do as well as I did in high school. But I'm thinking now that it might just be because I was maybe too scared to admit to myself that it actually wasn't what I wanted to do all along. And it was what sort of I was pressured into thinking I wanted to do. Do you think that's possible? I, I, I think that light bulb went off in your head for a reason. <laughs> wow. That's powerful stuff. I, uh, well, I thank you personally for that because that's taught me a lot. You're welcome. Here to serve. <laughs> so you say that my name is Sarah and I'm a recovering perfectionist. Why should we avoid this idea of perfection and how is it detrimental to us? Ooh, perfection is such a slippery, slippery thing. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned already in this conversation that for so much of my life, I would say right up through my mid-30s, I was governed by a sense of ambition and I wanted to succeed and I wanted to win and I wanted to do everything well and develop a reputation for being the best at everything I did. And I felt like I had to be perfect. And it really bothered me to be imperfect and to make mistakes. Um, and what happened was over time, my zest for perfection uh, crippled me because when I inevitably made a mistake or fell short, uh, I couldn't handle it because I hadn't allowed myself to have too much practice in, in that. I had been, you know, burning the candle at both ends for so long that when I ultimately did fail, when I dropped one of those balls that I was juggling, uh, it hit me so hard. And this is when I started having panic attacks and really suffering from anxiety in a very serious way, which led to depression. And I, I had to do a lot of re- uh, you know, reckoning with my own head and with what I wanted and what makes me happy and what doesn't make me happy and what makes me feel healthy and what makes me unhealthy and see that my, um, what I perceived to be a really noble pursuit of doing everything perfectly was actually uh, one of the primary architects of my unhappiness. So uh, I just think it's so important that we know, we understand, and that I wish I knew when I was younger that the perfect can indeed be the enemy of the good. Uh, there's a reason that that saying exists. And that I have to remember that uh, pursuit of perfection is actually a really unhealthy cycle for me and that I need to pull back and just be okay with, with being good enough uh, at various things so that I can just move forward, you know, unfettered by this sense of, of shame and, and paralysis that comes when you are focusing too much on getting something perfect. That makes me think of comparison as well. Um, I remember I was on a, a trip with my co-host and we were in Scotland and I remember talking to him. I was being really negative about myself. I was scrolling through Instagram at the time and I was seeing uh, all my high school friends' posts and I was seeing people who had, you know, just bought their first house or they were in a really good job. And I remember just complaining, saying, you know, I was, I thought I was going to be coming out of high school. I thought I was going to be at that level already. I didn't think these people would sort of beat me to the, 
beat me to the punch at the time. And I remember feeling really bad about myself when I was looking at where other people were. And uh, my friend turned to me and he said, well, why are you following them? So I remember I went through my uh, following list and I looked at each person and I was like, am I comparing myself to them? Is that making me feel bad? Am I getting anything out of following them? And I just purged my following list. And I think that, you know, eliminating yourself from that arena in which you're constantly comparing yourself to people, it can have such a damaging effect on you. Is that something you agree with? I do. And I think that that's a really mature and wise move that you made uh, and that your friend suggested because I really have no patience for people saying that, you know, woe is me. My life is terrible. The reason is because I'm comparing myself to other people and I don't have what they have. I'm like, then stop doing it. And if, <laughs> if you, if the way to stop doing that is to stop following them on Instagram, then stop following them on Instagram. Um, unfortunately for me, the, the perfectionist angle involved me holding myself up to myself, uh, you know, to like this idealized version of myself, which is a lot harder to unpack because you can't really unfollow yourself. Um, but I do think that generally speaking, you know, you got to have your eyes on the prize and look out for number one and just be focused on your own goals, your own needs, uh, what makes you happy and, and unhappy and sort it out for yourself, you know, looking at other people and, and wanting what they have doesn't, doesn't give you what they have. <laughs> uh, you have to be able to identify that and go off and get it for yourself if that's what you really want. Um, but unplug from the toxic, uh, you know, uh, consistent feed of I'm not as good as they are, uh, you know, that, that can be so, uh, prevalent in social media for people, you know, for 11 year olds and for 70 year olds. I mean, everybody has this problem. Mm. I'd love to touch, uh, on friendships with you because I'm, I'm at this place in my life now with it. My suit, like my inner circle, if you can call it that is something I'm really trying to focus on and I'm trying to, you know, bring the right energy to. So what would you say to those people who have friends that they feel they may have outgrown in the sense that they're not really getting anything positive out of the friendship anymore, but they feel obligated to maintain the friendship, maybe out of nostalgia, or maybe because they've invested so many years into that friendship, they feel it's an obligation to keep that friendship up. What's your advice on that? Is there a case of, you know, be, be ruthless with the decision you make? Or you know, what is your advice on that? Well, I actually need to give my husband credit for something that he, uh, he told me a long time ago and that we often come back to, which is it's fine to make the selfish decision, but carry it out as unselfishly as possible. So if there are friends, relationships in your life that are falling by the wayside because that other person is acting in a terrible way, is being really, really rude or awful, um, then fine. You know, pull that plug. Uh, don't worry about how you're doing it. Drop them, drop them from, your, from your phone book. Fine. But generally speaking, if there's a relationship that you, as you said, you aren't getting very much out of it or you feel like you've grown apart, it doesn't mean that you need to be rude and actively, uh, you know, cut that person out of your life in a really 
uh, uh, blunt kind of way that hurts their feelings, but it is okay to, to take your foot off the pedal. And, you know, I've had this experience with friends in my life where when I stopped making the effort, they also stopped making the effort. And we went our separate ways without any kind of blow up, any kind of real confrontation. Uh, it was just clear that if I wasn't getting very much out of the relationship, maybe they weren't either. And if I stopped trying to, if I stopped spending my, you know, what I call your fuck bucks, my time, energy, and money uh, in my fuck budget on maintaining this relationship that wasn't really serving me, if I, if I pulled back, um, you know, nothing bad happened because it turned out that, you know, they weren't that into it either. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think that the older I get, the tighter that inner circle becomes, the more I, I realize how much I value my best friends uh, and why I value them. And the less uh, obligated, to use that terrible word, I feel to maintain relationships that sap me of time and energy and wherewithal uh, with people who don't meet that level of value in my life. And that's okay because I might not meet that for them either. Sarah, I've loved the value you've brought this conversation. And before I let you go, I've, I've got to ask you a few more questions that we mm-hmm. ask every guest. So they're non-specific. Okay. The first one is you have written five books. Mm-hmm. They've undoubtedly impacted many people's lives. In fact, I know personally people who have been impacted by your work. Are there any books, and they don't necessarily have to be nonfiction, are there any books that you've read in your life that have had an impact on you? Jenny Lawson's first uh, memoir, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, had a huge impact on me because she speaks so candidly uh, and hilariously, but also tragically about mental health. And that was not something that I had encountered in any meaningful way before I read her first book. And her subsequent books are are excellent also. Uh, But definitely Let's Pretend This Never Happened was something that made a really massive impact on me and made me look at myself anew uh, and also is something that I, I like to squawk about all the time so that other people who are having issues with their mental health or with the mental health of people they love um, can really get an amazing window into what that's all about through her book. Fantastic. Are there any societal rules or societal norms that you love to break? There's so many. (laughs) My whole third book, You Do You, was all about busting through the social contract. But uh, a big one is this idea, don't be selfish. Uh, You know, I think that people think selfish is a four-letter word in this society, and I don't believe it is. And I think I know quite a bit about four-letter words. Um, I do believe that there are ways to look out for yourself and to make selfish decisions in as unselfish a way as possible. And that it's, you know, really healthy for you to be able to distinguish between doing something for yourself in a good way uh, and not being made to feel that acting selfishly is always a bad thing. This next question, it could be people you know personally, or it could be people you've never met, but who are or have been some of your biggest mentors in life? 
Oh, well, my uncle Bob, uh, who, who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was, he called himself my biggest fan. Um, he was a huge mentor for me intellectually and educationally. Um, you know, he was a, he had a master's in English literature and he was somebody that I always talked about with books from a very young age. He developed a, a summer reading list for me every year. And he was somebody that I always looked up to and wanted to impress um, but also just learned so much about communicating in a powerful and nuanced way from. So uh, I really have to give him a lot of credit for where I am today, even though I think maybe, you know, he wouldn't have done it with so many F-words. That's so beautiful. Um, the last question I have for you, maybe difficult for yourself having written, you know, about so many topics. I find that this question is, typically easier for people who are here to promote a specific book and exam uh, in particular, or I've only written one book, but you have covered so many topics. So I apologize if this is a hard question. Um, if you imagine a scenario in which you're given the opportunity to broadcast a message and every person on the planet is tuned into the same frequency and you can deliver one short or impactful message or lesson that you want every person on the planet to learn, what would Sarah Knight's message to the world be? I think that the most impactful piece of advice that I give, and though I give it in one specific book, it applies, uh, it, it applies to everything in life, is to ask yourself the one question to rule them all. And that is, can I control it? And if the answer is no, you need to find a way to let it go because there is nothing you can do <laughs> about things that you can't control and allowing those things and that lack of control to ruin your life uh, is not the way forward. Instead, you break it down into the components that you can control and that's where you focus your time and energy and money to improve your circumstances, to solve your problems or at least to mitigate them. But the first question that I would ask uh, myself in any situation is, can I control it? Beautiful. Now, I've already given Tesco a free shout out, but <laughs> for our audience, where can they find your work? Where can they buy the box? Where can they connect with you and find you online? Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate that all of your local booksellers, Waterstones and Foils and WH Smith, carry my books. Uh, they've been great about that. But you can go to my website, nofucksgivenguides.com, it's plural, and there are buy links to all of the major retailers uh, there. And you can also find me on social media from there. You can download the reading group guides and all of the little extras, those quizzes that I mentioned, the flow charts that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's a pretty pretty epic resource for all things Sarah Knight and No Fucks Given Guides. Sarah, thank you for giving us the time to come on the podcast and bring in so much value. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you've enjoyed it too. I have. Thank you so much for, for being so thoughtful and, and asking really smart and, uh, and, you know, nuanced questions because that's not always the case. And I really have enjoyed this conversation a lot. And that wraps up my conversation with Sarah Knight. Guys, if you haven't already joined up to the Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter, which we give out for free every single Monday with no marketing and no nonsense, head over to freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter and sign up there 
We will see you guys again on Friday for our second episode of the week. Until then, thank you for listening.